Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 12 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 92 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended August 18, 2018. Welcome. This week, I have a new favorite person, and her name is Omarosa. What fun this week. Donald Trump has finally met his match with his former reality TV star and former White House aide now launching a book this week. Last week, I didn't want to pay much attention to it, but seeing what happened this week, we're going to pay some attention and review it. And she has been playing him and his regime brilliantly. It's It's been fun to watch. I keep going back to the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, the other interesting themes to watch this week in order to distract, and this is something the Washington Post reported from what Omarosa was doing, Trump revoked security clearance of former CIA director John Brennan an unprecedented authoritarian-like move that set up another public battle with intelligence officers. We're going to talk about that as well. The other major theme this week was Trump's continuing war with the media. Um, This week, as we started the week on last Sunday, the Boston Globe had been starting to organize news outlets to run editorials on August 16th to speak out about the dangers of Trump's assault on the press. In the beginning of the week, as we started the week, 100 newspapers had signed up to do this. We'll talk about where that went this week. And also, as we started off this week, UN Human Rights Chief um, Zed El Hussein told The Guardian that Trump's anti-press rhetoric is, quote, very close to incitement to violence. That leads to journalists censoring themselves or being attacked. So just to put some perspective into that theme and how we're being seen around the world. That's usually not stuff you hear about a democracy, but here we are. I want to open up with two things that make me scream, things that are not normal that um, happened this week and I think we need to pay some more attention to, in addition to the other things we've just mentioned in the introduction. But... This week, Peter Strzok was fired from the FBI. His attorney said the firing was not handled in the usual manner of an employee discipline and said Strzok should face a demotion and a 60-day suspension. Trump, shortly after the firing, while he was rejoicing in doing his victory lap, tweeted, quote, Agent Peter Strzok was just fired from the FBI finally adding, the list of bad players in the FBI and DOJ gets longer and longer, and falsely claiming that Strzok was in charge of the witch hunt. Will it be dropped? Minutes later, he tweeted, just fired Agent Strzok, who was in charge of the crooked Hillary Clinton sham investigation, adding that investigation was a total fraud and should be properly Redone Again, encouraging uh, your own um, Department of Justice to go after a political opponent who lost the election, quote, lost the election two years ago. 
Rachel Maddow did an interesting analysis after Strzok's firing and a chart that she put up um, that you can see on my Facebook page and Twitter page if you look during the week. But she reported that he has been slowly getting rid of all of Comey's corroborating witnesses. The others who are gone, Andrew McCabe was fired. Jim Brabicki, James Baker, and Lisa Page were either reassigned or quit under fire. And Carl Gaddis is leaving the FBI. Of course, we know Comey was also fired. The only one of Comey's cooperating witnesses who remains is Deputy Director David Bowditch, the man who fired Strzok and did so contrary to FBI personnel office guidance. So notice how Trump has slowly cleared out everyone who could be evidence against him in this possible obstruction of justice and been getting away with it. The other thing that made me scream this week was, again, we talked about Trump's treatment of the media and in the beginning of the week, what the Boston Globe had hoped would be 100 news outlets. It turned out 411 news outlets denounced Trump's threats against the press. Um, the Boston Globe wrote in their editorial, to label the press the enemy of the people is as un-American as it is dangerous. News outlets that participated ranged from big city newspapers like the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune to smaller ones like the Van Buren County Democrat and the Swift County Monitor News. So what did Trump do that morning? He said, all in capital letters, the fake news media is the opposition party. But he said it's bad, and he said it's bad for our great country, but we are winning. He also then attacked the Boston Globe, of course, uh, who he said was in collusion with the other papers and made some snide comment about how much the New York Times paid for them and then sold them for one dollar. Uh, the brilliant businessman who bankrupt more companies than we can keep track of is criticizing the media. Uh, but then this is the part that made me scream, that on Thursday, the same day, our Senate unanimously passed a resolution affirming that, quote, the press is not the enemy of the people. So that's where we are, folks. Our senators have to vote on whether the media is the enemy of the people. And guess what? That's the only thing they've done to actually go up against Trump, despite all the stuff happening. So now let's get back to my new favorite person, Omarosa, who um, has been giving, I'm giving Trump like his own treatment of what he's used to. Um, he, we started off early in the week with her saying there were tapes of him saying the N-word. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that as well when we get to everyday racism. But Trump started off with the week calling her wacky Amorosa, saying she's vicious but not smart, and she begged me for a job with tears in her eyes. People in the White House hated her, and she only got the job because she said great things about me. <laughs> to which Kellyanne Conway's husband, who has been brilliantly trolling Trump all along, criticized Trump amplifying a tweet and that was asking what would happen if a CEO of a corporation hadn't fired an unqualified employee because the employee constantly praised him. But that's where we are, folks. On Monday, Trump tweeted on accusations of him using the N-word that, quote, Mark Burnett called to say that there are no tapes of The Apprentice, adding, I don't have that word in my vocabulary and have never, she made it up. Trump also tweeted calling Amorosa wacky and deranged again, 
Uh, she made it up. She has zero credibility with the media until she worked in the White House. And then this was actually kind of fun. Um, former Trump campaign spokesperson Katrina Pearson denied a conversation about Trump using the N-word took place, telling Fox News on Monday, no, that didn't happen. Sounds like she's writing a script for a movie. And then what did Almarosa do on Tuesday? CBS News reported a new recording obtained back up Omarosa's story that several Trump advisors discussed an alleged tape of him using the N-word during the 2016 campaign. Pearson is heard saying on the recording, quote, I am trying to find at least what context it was used in to help us maybe try to figure out ways to spin it. And, quote, he said no. He said it. He's embarrassed by it. Okay. So after that, the um, reporting was basically, if you remember what happened to Hillary's campaign, once they started to release emails, we were reading reporting this week, according to Politico on Tuesday, that Trump aides are, quote, absolutely terrified, waiting for the next shoe to drop. Amorosa said she has receipts. She's been releasing tapes. And as we closed out the week, AP reported, not only does she have tapes, she also has video. Uh, and some of these tapes, including her being fired, were taken in the Situation Room. She actually tape recorded John Kelly firing her in the Situation Room, where you're not supposed to have uh, tapes or even cell phones. Not the Trump White House, but the Trump campaign sued Amorosa to try to silence her uh, and has been, according to her, also going after her publisher. But to no avail, she's still talking. She talked the next day and said that Betsy DeVos had mocked black students after a speech saying, quote, they don't get it. They don't have the capacity to understand what we're trying to accomplish. So she kept leaking out and then interestingly, as we got to the end of the week, there was another case that was filed by a woman by the name of Jessica Denson, saying she was subjected to harassment and sexual discrimination when she worked at the Trump campaign. She had signed what are the Trump campaign confidentiality agreements. And the court found, despite Trump's campaign saying that these this case should be heard behind closed doors, that the agreement doesn't actually say that. So again, one of the things that I've always said I was most happy about is Trump's incompetence, that even if Omarosa, although she didn't sign anything in the White House, even if she did sign something in years prior, looks like at least those are gonna be partially unenforceable in terms of keeping it out of the public eye. Now our weekly um, section called Everyday Racism, where again, I wanna talk about Omarosa and, and she started out on Sunday saying that Trump had said the N-word. Um, and that led to a conversation on Meet the Press um, where Kellyanne Conway, excuse me, on this week, where Kellyanne Conway was asked to name the most prominent African-American West Wing staffer after the departure of Omarosa. And her reply was, remember Beavis and Butthead, where they would just be like, uh, uh, there was a long silence. Then there was a name thrown out that wasn't somebody actually in the West Wing, but the non-answer was the answer and the lack of diversity that Trump has had in his West Wing. 
and in his administration generally. On Saturday, this was some good news because there was a lot of buildup and a lot of concern. The second annual Unite the Right rally took place. First one was in Charlottesville last year where martyr Heather Heyer was killed and many others were injured. Um, this year it was held at Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. The good news was fewer than 40 white supremacists showed up after organizer Jason Kessler said he had hoped for 400 supporters. The group was met with thousands of counter-protesters who filled their half of Lafayette Square chanting, go home Nazis, no Trump, no KKK, no fascists USA, and Black Lives Matter. In other everyday races of this week, KTLA News reported that an apartment complex in Century City, California, Miguel Sanchez recorded a video of he and his coworker being verbally attacked as, quote, wetbacks and having hot coffee thrown in his face by a white woman. On Wednesday, a fire chief in East Syracuse, New York, was demoted after a Facebook post about Maxine Waters saying she gives the, quote, N-word a bad name. He was shortly thereafter demoted. On Monday at a fundraiser for Representative Claudia Tenney in New York again, Trump called Rep. Representative Maxine Waters, quote, a low IQ person and claimed she wants people to be violent. She wants people to attack. So notice the continuing theme of Trump calling people of color. A couple of weeks ago, he called Don Lemon and LeBron James dumb. Um, he's called this week Amorosa, all variations of dumb and a dog, and Maxine Waters. Not only is she low IQ, but she's violent and wants people to attack. On Sunday, the New York Times reported Trump's Department of Justice, and this is really important, folks, with the upcoming elections. Trump's Department of Justice has abandoned its role under the, administ uh, under the Obama administration to stop states from implementing measures that suppress the vote. Increasingly, under Sessions, the Department of Justice is actually siding with states to suppress the vote. We talked about the Ohio Supreme Court case. This is super important, so listen up. In Ohio, originally when that case was at the U.S. Courts of Appeal, the Obama administration had sided against the state of Ohio who wanted to be able to purge their voter rolls. When it went then, and it was appealed and went to the Supreme Court, Sessions Department of Justice reversed course at the Supreme Court and sided with Ohio. Um, and you know the reason this is important, after that was approved, not only has Ohio been allowed to purge voters, nine other red states took their lead. So please, folks, if you're listening, when you are done listening today, make a note to yourself, just to be safe, Go to vote.org or another website and make sure you are registered to vote. They are looking to wipe Democrat votes, people of color votes off the voter ballots. So other than that, I want to talk about what's happening. Keep up with what's happening with the migrant crisis. According to a filing, and this is just goes into generally the general theme of the whitening of America, According to a filing by the ACLU, two federal government agencies set a trap for immigrants seeking legal residency interviews at government offices, having them arrested and in some cases deported. 
Emails obtained by the ACLU revealed that ICE planned to target married immigrants who seek green cards. An ACLU representative said the government can create that path and then arrest folks for following that path. So this is just unheard of, this kind of stuff happening. Um, there's no there's no evidence there's any criminal record or anything. These are just they're trying to arrest them when they go in as a spouse who seeks a green card. Other things that are happening, the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation said in a report that Trump's zero tolerance policy, quote, exacerbated existing problems with tracking children. Ahead of the subcommittee hearing this past Thursday, Health and Human Services said it was unable to provide data on separated children from this year because of the toll the family unification effort is taking on resources. The Young Turks reported ICE has ordered 60 what are called wraps, which are full body restraints that resemble straitjackets for restraining detainees who may be noncompliant during, quote, removal operations. And then on Friday, NPR reported FEMA has begun scaling back financial assistance to Puerto Rico. FEMA said it will cover just 90% of costs for agency work, including items like power restoration and debris cleanup. The government of Puerto Rico plans to appeal when officials said, our government will continue to demand the equal treatment to which all Puerto Ricans are entitled as American citizens. So we just have basically been abandoning as thousands are dead. We still don't have a final count. Um, the people who are in Puerto Rico as hurricane season starts up again. Next, I want to talk about corruption and kleptocracy in the Trump regime. This week, on Monday, Politico reported Trump offered White House staffers a merchandising credit of 15 to 70 percent off goods at his golf club, representing a blurring of lines between his private business and current position. On Monday, Forbes reported, remember Will Barras, we talked about him last week and his 120 million of various lawsuits against him. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross met with Bill Furman, the CEO of Greenbrier Companies, in May 2017 as he was serving as Secretary of Commerce, according to Ross's calendar. At the time, Ross had a financial stake in Greenbrier Companies. A report from government watchdog Campaign Legal Center found Ross took several actions that could affect his holdings in Greenbrier including coming before the, the company coming before his department, possibly breaking the law. So again, just keeps going, the whole regime. On Monday in a press release, the Department of Housing and Urban Development made its firmest commitment yet to tear down the 2015 Obama-era framework for enfor enforcing the Fair Housing Act. The affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, the strongest, strongest effort in decades to crack down on segregation and discriminatory housing practices would be cut. Secretary Ben Carson called the rule a quote, unworkable requirement. On Friday, prosecutors in the Southern District of New York sued New York businessman Moshe Lacks, a former business partner of Ivanka Trump for 60 million in unpaid tax liabilities. Though the complaint does not mention Ivanka or accuse her of wrongdoing, Madison Avenue Diamonds, the business that she helped run for years, 
figures prominently in the government's case. Lacks told at least one associate that he discussed financing strategy with Trump, and he reportedly wanted to strike while Trump's name was hot to turn Ivanka's fine jewelry brand into a 500 million brand. And then as we close the week, the Washington Post reported the Department of Justice is investigating Elliot Brody, remember him? And his efforts to personally gain tens of millions of dollars by delivering access to the U.S. government under Trump. Two examples were given. Investigators are examining a plan Brody allegedly developed to persuade the Trump regime to extradite a Chinese dissident as sought by Chinese President Yi. Prosecutors have also subpoenaed Steve Wynn in that matter. The second example was investigators are also looking into Brody seeking $75 million from the Mal- a Malaysian businessman in, exchanging, in exchange for getting the Department of Justice to end its investigation of a development fund run by the Malaysian government. Now let's talk about the Manafort trial. Not a whole lot this week. We closed out the week early in the week with the final witnesses. The defense did not call any witnesses, Manafort's defense. The prosecutors closed out talking about what we've been talking about, this loan from Federal Savings Bank run by Stephen Koch. The last witness was James Brennan, a vice president of the bank, who said he faced so much pressure to approve Manafort's loan, he lied on forms reviewed by federal regulators and the bank's directors. Brennan said he gave a second loan for $6.5 million, a four rating, a rating that would allow it to be approved under pressure from Steve Koch. The bank lost $11.8 million on the loans it made to Manafort. Those were two loans, one for 16, one for 6.5. So you make $22.2 million in loans and you lose 11.8. That sounds like a Trump business. On Tuesday, in an email released by the Department of Justice, Manafort had actually sent Kushner a recommendation on November 30th, 2016, to appoint Stephen Koch as Secretary of the Army as he received the first part of his $16 million loan. Kushner, what did he do? You would think he would say, no way, we can't do that in exchange for a loan. Instead, he said, quote, on it, exclamation point. How things work in the Trump regime. So as we ended out the week, the jury on Friday said they were not going to reach um, a verdict by five. Judge Ellis revealed in court that he has received death threats during the Manafort trial and has had a U.S. Marshal detail following him at all times. Judge Ellis also said several media outlets had filed a motion requesting the jurors' information And although, quote, a thirsty press is essential, he will not make names public in order to preserve their safety. And then here's more not normal, not normal for you. Listen to this. As we were hearing all that on Friday and the Trump and the day was was wrapping up, Trump had tweeted. uh, No, Trump had actually told reporters that morning, quote, I think the whole Manafort trial is very sad, adding Manafort is, quote, a very good person. And Trump said, quote, I think it's very sad what they've done to Paul Manafort. On Friday, as court closed out for the day, Kevin Downing, Manafort's defense attorney, told reporters, quote, really appreciate the support of President Trump. Sounds a lot like they're in simpatico because we learned this week 
after this trial concludes, the next trial coming up in September, Manafort has already, excuse me, Mueller has already filed over a thousand documents, which are three times as many as were filed in this case. The chance that Manafort's going to get set free of both of these hearings, low to none. So again, speculation that there's communication and maybe some sort of promise of pardon in, in order for him not to cooperate. So beyond that, the Mueller probe, a lot of other things happening this week. On Monday, the U.S. District Court denied a motion by Concord Management and Consulting to dismiss an indictment on the grounds Mueller was appointed unlawfully. The company allegedly has ties to, I'm going to mispronounce this one, Yegivin Viktorovich Begozen, a Russian businessman better known as Putin's chef. Well, I'll just say Putin's chef who is accused of funding Russian troll farms used to sow dissent during the 2016 election. So that case will proceed. That was part of the Mueller probe. On Monday, CNN reported that according to two intelligence agencies, the Kremlin is, quote, pleased with the Helsinki summit between Trump and Putin and that it delivered a better outcome than expected. Who would have thought? On Tuesday, Politico reported the FBI is an examining a college... U.S.-Russia exchange program involving Alexander Torshin. Remember him? He's the handler of Butina, who has been indicted as a Russian spy, and they both were very involved with the NRA, Alexander Torshin. Six years ago, he hosted young Americans visiting Moscow as part of cultural exchange programs. A former student who participated in the program said the FBI agents questioning him said they had, quote, a great degree of confidence that the trips were part of an effort to spot and assess future intelligence assets. So also this week on the Mueller probe, Giuliani said an awful lot of stuff. And I'm just going to um, summarize that as blah, blah, blah. That's all the attention it deserves. Uh, also this week, the Daily Beast reported Daniel Gle uh, Gelbinvich, a Trump campaign staffer, reached out on behalf of Russian oligarch Roman Abramov to try to find lobbyists to help him get off the Treasury Department sanction list. On Thursday, the special counsel master in Cohen's case said in a filing she found more than 7,000 privileged items in total. Cohen and his attorney, Lanny Davis, have been remarkably silent this week fueling speculation of a plea deal. On Thursday, Rand Paul, who last week visited Moscow out of the blue, told Fox News he will ask Trump and the Treasury Department to lift sanction on members of the Russian legislature so they can travel to the U.S. for meetings with U.S. officials. Paul wants to lift sanctions on two lawmakers, Leonid Slutsky and Konstantin Kosevich, whose chair committees that um, are relevant to what their, the, their compatriots in the U.S. are doing. If this name doesn't sound familiar, Constantine Kostyevez, uh, the Independence Day visit with other Republican senators, they also met with him. And he also was put under sanctions in April 2018 by the Treasury Department under Trump for his role in 2016 election interference. On Friday, Mueller's team told the court in a filing that George Papadopoulos lied about his contacts with Russian operatives and, quote, caused damage and had a, quote, significant effect on the government's inquiry. 
Papadopoulos lied about the timing, extent, and nature of meetings and about his conversations with Joseph Mipsud, the professor who has, quote, disappeared, as we like to say in Russian terms. We haven't seen him for several months. Uh, And Mueller's team said this undermined the investigation and their ability to potentially detain or, or arrest Mifsud while he was still in the United States. In the following, Mueller's team recommended that Papadopoulos be imprisoned for up to six months. That would make him the third member of the Trump regime to go to prison in this quote unquote witch hunt hoax. So we'll keep an eye on that. And then as we closed out the week in the Mueller probe, and this was fun, in addition to Papadopoulos and Michael Cohen potentially cooperating, on Saturday, the New York Times reported White House counsel Don McGahn is cooperating extensively in the Mueller probe of possible obstruction of justice by Trump. McGahn has had at least three interviews with investigators totaling 30 hours over the last nine months, discussing Trump's rage rage over the Russia probe and ways he urged McGahn to respond to it. On obstruction of justice, McCain has, excuse me, McGahn, McGahn has also provided a clear view of Trump at intimate moments of those times. McGahn's cooperation began as part of Trump's first criminal lawyer team who decided to fully collaborate. Areas of possible interest include Trump's comments and actions during the Comey firing, Trump's repeated urging for Sessions to claim oversight of the Mueller probe, and Trump's attempts to fire Mueller. So you have someone in the room where it happened, now we know testifying extensively in the Mueller probe. So with all this stuff happening this week, with Omarosa happening, um, all the things related to Russia, but specifically Omarosa, because that really got under Trump's skin. She knows how to play the reality TV game, suck up the media oxygen, have everybody in his regime living in fear. The Washington Post reported that very specifically in reaction to that, a draft of of revoking John Brennan, former CIA director John Brennan's security clearance was put in play this week, again, in order to distract from Omarosa. That's where we are, folks. On Wednesday, in an unprecedented use of power, Trump revoked security clearance, citing Brennan's, quote, erratic behavior and, quote, increasingly frenzied commentary. On Wednesday, at the daily press briefing, Sanders said, quote, Brennan leveraged his status with, quote, access to highly sensitive information to make, quote, unfounded and outrageous allegations against Trump. I just want to stick in a little asterisk here that this was the first press briefing in two weeks that happened Tuesday. And I want to stick in another asterisk here that the Department of Defense has been limiting access to the media. And this week there was a statement very specifically from their spokesperson that said they are watching reporting and people that report or publications that report negatively on them will have their access further limited. So just as a side note, the transparency, whatever little transparency there was, and whatever it's worth, I should add, is disappearing. But back to revoking security clearance. 
The White House announced the clearance of a number of other officials, including former NSA Director Michael Hayden and former DNI James Clapper, are also under view, as well as several others. On Wednesday, in another Lester Holt moment with the Wall Street Journal, Trump said his motivation for revoking Brennan's clearance was, quote, the rigged witch hunt. It is a sham, adding, quote, and these people let it. So there you go again. Why did you fire Comey to get rid of the Russia probe? Why did you revoke security clearance? Because of the rigged witch hunt. Oh, you can't make this stuff up. On Thursday, in a scathing New York Times op-ed, Brennan, who was not going to be silenced apparently, wrote that Trump, quote, revoked my security clearance to try to silence anyone who would dare challenge him and wrote, Russian denials are, in a word, hogwash. Brennan also claimed Trump's claim of no collusion or hogwash and said the only question that remains are whether the collusion that took place constitutes criminally liable conspiracy. Brennan wrote the other questions are whether obstruction of justice occurred and how many members of Trump Incorporated attempted laundering and concealing the movement of money into their pockets. Kaboom. Ah, and then remember Senator Rand Paul, we've been talking a lot about him lately. Uh, again, who in week 89, in addition to his visit to Moscow, had encouraged Trump to revoke security clearance. He applauded Trump's move to revoke security clearance. Um, that first day, there was a little bit of pushback from the same people who always push back, Senator Corker and Susan Collins, very mild. But then as the next day happened, all the Republicans, other than them, got firmly behind Trump and said it was his prerogative to do something that has never been happened before, that is authoritarian effort to silence people uh, and is unprecedented. But the Republicans, as usual, seem to be okay with it. On Thursday, in a Washington Post op-ed, William McRaven, who that name made some familiar, he was the commander in charge of the raid that killed Osama bin Laden, told Trump to revoke his security clearance in an op-ed. McRaven wrote, Brennan, quote, is one of the finest public servants I have ever known and a man of unparalleled integrity. And he accused Trump of McCarthy-era tactics to suppress the voices of criticism. McRaven also said he hoped Trump would, quote, rise to the occasion in office, but instead Trump has, quote, embarrassed us in the eyes of our children humiliated us on the world stage, and worst of all, divided us as a nation. Wow. On Thursday, more than a dozen bipartisan former intelligence chiefs issued a statement to support Brennan, praising his work as head of the CIA and calling allegations of wrongdoing against him baseless. They accused Trump of trying to stifle free press and declared the removal of a security clearance as a, quote, political tool and said it was unprecedented. They also said it was clearly a signal to silence other security officials. On Friday, Politico reported Bob Gates, who ran the Pentagon under George W. Bush, as well as Obama, also signed on to that letter, making four, 14 officials in all. On Friday, Trump told reporters outside the White House, quote, I think Bruce Orr is a disgrace and his wife Nellie and plans to, quote, very quickly strip Bruce Orr of his security clearance. Remember, we've been talking about Bruce Orr the last couple of weeks. 
now that they've gotten rid of Strzok, he's a next shiny coin to distract. And Trump is after him. He's got him and Lindsey Graham was talking about him earlier in the week. Devin Nunes last week that he's squarely in their sights. Trump also said Friday morning to reporters of Brennan, quote, I've never respected him. Uh, and he denied that he tried to silence Brennan, saying, quote, if anything, I'm giving him a bigger voice. Then later after that, on Friday, 60 additional former CIA officials, all from CIA, signed a statement saying, quote, former government officials have the right to express their unclassified views on critical national security issues without fearing reprisal. Uh, and then as we close the week again, um, not to be silenced, Trump attacked Brennan on Saturday, tweeting he is, quote, a loudmouth partisan political hack who cannot be trusted with classified information, adding, quote, he will go down as easily the worst in history. Okay, so as, uh, you can assume that we're going to see more revoking this week as a way to distract and Trump flexing his muscles. And again, part of this theme that he keeps pushing boundaries of what he can get away with. And until the Republicans stop him from doing it, he's going to keep pushing further. That or in November when the Democrats take control of part of the legislature or all of it and can put some checks and balances in place. I want to close out with odds and ends. There were lots of interesting ones this week. In the beginning of the week on Sunday, Bobby Goodlatte, the son of GOP um, Representative Bob Goodlatte, who we've talked about a lot in this podcast, tweeted that he, quote, gave the maximum allowed donation to Jennifer Lewis, a Democrat running for his father's seat. Bobby also helped fundraise for Lewis. Bobby tweeted, quote, I'm deeply embarrassed that Peter Strzok's career was ruined by my father's political grandstanding, adding that the committee's hearing was a low point for Congress. If you'll recall in an earlier podcast, Goodlatte is the one who pressed Strzok about his marriage and how he could look at his wife after what he did, like the rest of these guys in the room. Uh, on Monday, and this was a lot of fun, Stephen Miller's uncle, David Glosser, wrote an op-ed calling Miller a hypocrite on immigration, saying his great-grandfather came to the U.S. as an immigrant fleeing anti-Jewish pogroms in what is now Belarus. Once his great-grandfather had settled and raised money, he was able to gain passage for his family, a process now known as chain migration which is something that Miller and Trump are trying to eliminate. Again, the hypocrisy we talked about last week with Ivanka's family using chain migration. It works fine for them, but for everybody else, no, no, no separate rules. On Thursday, oh, excuse me, on Tuesday, this, this is more neat stuff happening in the, in the Me Too era. Uh, in state primaries, Christine Halquas became the first transgender candidate to be nominated for a governorship by a major party. Congratulations, Christine. That's up in Vermont. Also on Tuesday, Minnesota State Rep Ilhan Omar, you'll remember her, she was in week four, she was in a cab in DC and attacked by the cab driver for wearing hijab. She won her primary to also be the Democratic nominee for Congress uh, in November, making possibly two women in line uh, to be the first woman or women who are Muslim American in our U.S. Congress. So that's kind of exciting. Another thing to look forward to ahead of the midterms. 
On Monday, Trump traveled to Fort Drum to sign a defense bill named for Senator John McCain. Neither Trump nor Vice President mentioned McCain, who has been critical of Trump at the ceremony. All class. Um, And then this was some fun. On Thursday, the the Pentagon said that Trump's military parade slated for this fall will need to be delayed, knowing that the parade could cost up to $92 million, far more than the earlier estimates that Trump had given of 10 to $30 million. On Friday, Trump tweeted blaming the higher cost on, quote, the local politicians who run Washington, D.C., in parentheses, poorly, know the windfall when they see it. And Trump said, quote, they wanted a number of so ridiculously high that I canceled it. Darn. It's no military parade. He's going to go to Paris instead and do one there. On Friday, NBC News reported Trump is frustrated with his national security team's Afghanistan strategy and is showing renewed interest in a proposal by Blackwater founder Eric Prince to privatize the war, something his friend Putin does as well. On Thursday, another odd and end, the White House announced Melania plans to address a cyberbullying summit about the positive and negative effects of social media on youth in Maryland next week as part of her Be Best initiative. On Friday, in a piece on Melania Trump, the New York Times reported that Trump tried to dissuade her from starting the Be Best anti-bullying campaign, asking her to choose a different topic instead. Trump was reportedly warned Melania that she was opening herself to questions and backlash given his tendency to bully on Twitter. Melania said she was prepared to face any criticism her project might attract. And then finally, we talked about Ohio and the voter purge and the need to check your, that you're still on the voter roll. In a letter this week, Senators Feinstein, Leahy, and Dick Durbin asked the Senate Judiciary Chair Chuck Grassley to make sure documents, which they say reveal Brett Kavanaugh misled the Senate during his 2008, excuse me, 2006 nomination hearing are made public. Questions are surrounding whether Kavanaugh misled the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2006 about his work on terrorism policy and torture for the George W. Bush administration after 9-11. Here's a number for you. The senators said less than 3% of Kavanaugh's records have been made available to Congress, compared to Elena Kagan's nomination where 99% of White House records were made public. 3% and 99%. Doesn't sound like transparency to me. Again, the importance of getting involved and active showing up to vote, calling your senators, staying engaged. There is so much happening in this chaos. We have to all make sure that we are paying attention. So hope you enjoyed this week in August. If you took this week off, you're now fully caught up. We'll look forward to hearing from you next time.